We're going to be reading the second half of chapter 12. You can find this on page 293 in the Pew Bible. And uh, I'll be reading from the New King James Version, which is the same that you have there in the Pew. Our congregation's been working through this book. Uh, Children, remind me, how many judges did we say are in the entire book of judges? How many different judges? Anyone remember the number? Go ahead. Twelve. Very good. So any idea how many have we covered so far? We just finished Jephthah last week. You remember how many so far? Oh, boy. Oh, yep. No, it maybe feels like ten, but it hasn't been ten yet. Not quite. Yes? Eight. It's right. It's eight. So we've covered eight. So how many does that mean we have left? Really tricky. All right, yes, four. Excellent, excellent, very good. So we have four left. Now you're going to be surprised because we're going to cover three of those four today. So we're going to go through three of them very fast, and then we will spend a lot of time on the final judge, who is perhaps the most famous judge, Samson. Uh, but the three, I'm almost guaranteeing that if, uh, if I asked you to name the three judges we have before us today, you would not know unless you look down in your Bible. These are not the most famous of the judges, but we think they're very important, and so we want to spend a little time talking about them. So we'll begin our reading at chapter 12, verse 8, and then we'll read down to the end of the chapter. This is God's word. <clears throat> After him, now that's Jephthah, the one we finished last week. After him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons, and he gave away 30 daughters in marriage and brought in 30 daughters from elsewhere for his sons. He judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzan died and was buried at Bethlehem. After him, Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel. He judged Israel 10 years. And Elon, the Zebulonite, died and was buried at Ajalon in the country of Zebulon. After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 young donkeys. He judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, died and was buried in Parathon in the land of Ephraim, in the mountains of the Amalekites. And there will end the reading of God's word. May God bless his word to us this morning. Well, I don't know if you've been following in the news this last week, this drama surrounding retired NFL player Michael Orr and the Tui family who uh, took him in when he was a high school student. This heartwarming story is the subject of the movie The Blind Side, Uh, which is a movie, probably one of the most popular sports movies in terms of revenues generated. Uh, The actress Sandra Bullock won an Oscar. And what just happened in the last week is Michael Orr has filed a lawsuit against the Tui family, uh, claiming that they have defrauded him out of some of the money that came in from the movie. Uh, The family has responded and said they're heartbroken about this, Uh, but that uh, Michael Orr is trying to shake them down for $15 million. And so I don't claim to know uh, who's telling the truth. What what strikes me 
is just this reality. Here you have this incredible kind of rags to riches story. Uh, A wealthy Memphis family takes in a a high school kid out of the uh, out of the foster care system and uh, he eventually goes on to be an NFL football player. Everyone in the story is a multi-millionaire and yet here's all this dysfunction that just comes to the surface. And I think it's an, an apt um, a metaphor for the lives that we live, where uh, you have this dysfunction just lying below the surface, uh, waiting to uh, rear its head at any moment. Because this is the context in which we live now. We live in a world uh, of dysfunction. And the question is, how are we going to escape it? How are we going to escape this brokenness that is in our world? Some of us have dealt with this kind of thing in our family in different ways. Uh, The church is certainly not immune from it. Our society is clearly not immune from it. And uh, and so that's the question. That's very much what was going on in the book of Judges. Uh, Great and massive levels of dysfunction. And, uh, And yet we see God breaking in in this little passage we read today, blessing his people and doing that in remarkable ways in the overall context of a culture and society that was crashing and burning. And that's encouraging because it reminds us that no matter what's going on in the culture around you, uh, God blesses his people and he gives us these, um, these oases almost of grace in the middle of our struggle. So what I hope we'll learn, and this is in your outline as our main point as we look at this passage, is that we would learn to appreciate the fact that God is committed to blessing you even in the midst of the dysfunction that surrounds you. And children, if you're gonna draw a picture, just so you understand, when I use the word dysfunction, I mean broken, I mean things don't work like they are supposed to. And so I've asked you, maybe you could draw one or more of these judges and listen for what we learn about them as we go through the service. The first thing I want you to notice, and you do have an outline, again, if you want to follow along here, you live in a world of dysfunction. So uh, verse 8 begins, after him. So this, again, reminds us of what we've been studying of this judge, Jephthah. You remember, uh, Israel had been oppressed for 18 years by the Ammonites and they had been enslaved and Jephthah was uh, called by God. He was raised up to deliver the people and after he did that though uh, others of the people he had rescued the Ephraimite tribe came to him and complained about what he had done and this led to a civil war this internal strife and recriminations and 42,000 of the Israelites were killed by other Israelites in the midst of this. Uh, So order was restored by Jephthah, but it was violent. And so now these three judges come on the heels of this period of civil war. And uh, and it's helpful for us to get that context. I put in your outline, in your bulletin there, an outline of the book uh, to this point. And so if you look on the very back page, uh, you'll see at the top of my outline there, um, an outline of this book. And... um, you'll see that when we get into the main body of the book, which started at chapter 3, verse 7, you have these judges laid out for us. And I've divided the first four judges, I've called them exemplary judges. These are judges which did their work without any hint of taint or uh, error in it. 
It doesn't mean they were perfect people, but it means they were pointing uh, to a perfect deliverer. And then I've uh, organized the last set of judges under less than exemplary judges. We'll just leave it there. We will say no more. When we get into Samson, uh, this was going to be front and center. And so those three major judges, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson, we spent a lot of time. And notice that the text invests a lot more time in these judges uh, where things are complicated and the judge is kind of a mixed bag, some good, some bad. Because what's going on is this overall decline, that the, the nation is spiraling down. And, um, and so with it, we get judges that are reflecting the nation more and more. But you see, between Gideon and Jephthah, we had this little, little interlude. Uh, these two really brief accounts of Tola and Jair. And then again now, where we are, between Jephthah and Samson, the second interlude with Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon. The commentators sometimes call these minor judges. They're only minor in the sense that there isn't that much written about them, kind of like the minor prophets, but they are important. They're important in the narrative because what we're being shown here is this overall trend of going down, 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 and yet God intervenes with these little uh, interludes along the way. I know I've talked to some of you about my role as the ombudsman for the Department of Biology. Uh, ombudsman is a highly coveted position, right? Your job is to uh, referee when there's disagreements within the, de the, the department. And so if, if a faculty member is having a problem with a student, or a student with a faculty member, or two students, or faculty member and faculty member, I've actually had all four of those different combinations. And they come to me, and uh, I, I really can't make anything happen, but my job is to try to sort of help people work through these disagreements. And it's so amazing to me how often um, I say things like, well, have you actually talked to the professor about this? And the answer is no. And so we, we, have, an, we have a total impasse we can't resolve, and we haven't actually sat down with the person and talked to them one-on-one. -on -one. So I'll say something like, do you think that that might help? If, if you were in the, the, the professor, sorry, the professor's position, you know, would, would it help if a student was having trouble came and actually talked to you one-on-one? -on -one? And maybe get them to see that uh, actually sitting down and working together might be a good way to go. And sometimes that is enough, often actually, to help them work through their disagreement. Obviously not rocket science, but, but it's sort of symptomatic of the day and age in which we live, where people cannot solve the most basic interpersonal problems. And, and that, this, is what, this is the milieu in which we live, where dysfunction has affected, brokenness has affected just about everything, right? Families that are impacted by infidelity and divorce, substance abuse, homelessness. We see in the, in the culture broadly out of control crime, anger, and abuse of different types, and, and people who cannot figure these things out. And it's not that the church is exempt from these things. These things crowd into our lives. Some of you have these things in your own backgrounds or your extended family backgrounds or your friends or your colleagues' backgrounds. And so this is the, the life and in, in the, the environment in which we are where uh, people have differing levels of dysfunctioning and you cannot avoid it. You cannot avoid it. And this is what we are dealing with in the book of Judges. 
So you and I live in a world of dysfunction. But secondly, we see here, God is committed to blessing you in the midst of this dysfunction that surrounds you. Uh, so um, we read about Jephthah back in verse 7. Uh, his career ended this way. It said, Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried among the cities of Gilead. He had judged Israel for six years. So he did his work. Uh, he died. He was buried in honor in his hometown. This indicates a dignified burial, a successful career. And we see that then in verses 10, 12, and 15 for these next three judges. Uh, that Ibzon uh, died and was buried at Bethlehem uh, in verse 10. And in verse 12, uh, Elon, uh, was uh, died and was buried in Zebulun. He finished his work. He served for 10 years. Uh, after him, Abdon, then it tells us he served for eight years. And then he died and was buried in his hometown as well. And so the picture it's presenting is, a, is successful careers, a dignified burial in their hometown. They have served well. And what's missing from this picture is actually sort of more important perhaps than what is mentioned. So again, going back to the, uh, the bulletin and the outline I gave you, I put a little figure in here of the cycles of sin in the judges. And you remember, you go back to the early chapters of the book, this is the pattern that was laid out, that Israel is serving the Lord, then they fall into idolatry, then they're enslaved, an external foe comes and oppresses them, they cry out to the Lord for help, God sends the judge, then they are delivered, and the cycle repeats itself. But what's missing in this account, these three short judges, there's no turning away from God mentioned. There's no new idolatry that comes into the situation. And there's no oppression. God doesn't send a nation from outside to oppress them to get their attention. Those things are absent, and that is not insignificant. That's important to realize, that God is giving them a period here of relative peace and prosperity, avoiding this cycle that's been going on. There's no external oppressor. There doesn't seem to be any new internal idolatry. So this is a rare time indeed. I know some of you have probably been following the uh, reports of, Hil uh, of Hurricane Hillary coming uh, on the southern coast of California. Uh, apparently a very rare event to have a, a tropical storm warning hitting southern California. And, and when a true hurricane hits, uh, you have the tremendous wind and rain on the front side, and then you come into a period uh, the eye of the storm, where it can be literally uh, sunny out, and maybe the wind's only blowing 10 or 15 miles an hour, but you know more is on the way, and this is what they're worried about there, is just the incredible rains that are uh, being forecast. And this is very much what the book of Judges is showing us. There's, in a sense, a sort of cultural hurricane coming through, and they've gotten to a point of a pause, an eye of the storm, sort of, where thing, the sun comes out, the wind blows, and it's not so violent. I would submit there's something sort of like this going on in our own culture right now. Um, we may look around and say we don't like the trends. Things are not going in the right direction. 
but I'd have you try to imagine what would be going on right now if, for example, Hillary Clinton had nominated the last three Supreme Court judges. In, in many ways, our Supreme Court is the only thing that's slowing down uh, this tsunami uh, that's heading our direction. And uh, we may experience a brief pause. Uh, part of the point of the passage, though, is to tell us we should be grateful for that whenever it happens. But praise the Lord that he sends us a little bit of light in the midst of an over, otherwise perhaps very dark situation. Uh, we can be thankful for that in, in our own lives. I think we see signs of grace all around us, even as we deal with challenges in our culture. We see our young people maturing and, and professing their faith. We, we see the joy of gathering and worshiping the Lord. We see the blessing of being able to work and minister to others. Uh, I know some of you, unfortunately, my schedule didn't allow, but I know uh, s several of you were able to enjoy a fancy meal and music. Uh, down at Sam's uh, with uh, Zephaniah helping out. Uh, this, these, are, these are windows of grace. These are blessings that we should celebrate that the Lord allows us to experience when there may be uh, all this dysfunction going on all around us. So God is committed to blessing you in the midst of the dysfunction that surrounds you. Thirdly, we see that God's blessing comes through unique people that he calls and equips so one of the things that's so wonderful about the church, about the way God works, is that he works through people and, uh, and, and a wide variety of people. And, and we are struck by that about the judges, the diversity of people, where they're from, their contributions. So we're introduced in verse 8 to Ibzan of Bethlehem. Um, now commentators debate which Bethlehem this is because in the, in the scripture, uh, when it's Bethlehem, the home place of David, the birthplace of Jesus, it's usually referred to as Bethlehem in Judah or, or Bethlehem Ephrathah is what it is in the New Testament. And so since it doesn't say it's in Judah, some think it's a different Bethlehem. There were a number of places. Some people think uh, it's a place up in the north. Uh, Matthew Henry, uh, for what it's worth, thinks it is the Bethlehem in Judah. And what's really interesting is that the Talmud, so the, the Jewish history, says that it is the Bethlehem in Judah, and furthermore, that Ibzan is actually, um, is actually Boaz, uh, who comes up in the book of Ruth. And Ruth is set during the time of the judges. Now, most mo modern commentators don't think uh, that that's the case. So we don't know for sure who this man is. He's probably a man like Boaz, as described, in the scriptures, because we're told here uh, he must be very, um, very prosperous. He has many children. These nice round numbers, or sometimes the Bible rounds the numbers uh, sort of for impact, uh, but 30 uh, sons and 30 daughters is, is significant, uh, and they're all married. Uh, Matthew Henry, noting the irony here, says what a difference there was between Ibzan's family and that of his immediate predecessor, Jephthah, Ibzan has 60 children and all married. Jephthah has but one, a daughter that dies or lives. We argued last week, lives, or two weeks ago, lives, unmarried. Some are increased, others are diminished. Both are the Lord's doing. Yes, God uses all kinds of people and situations. And one of the things to notice here about Ibzan is that he goes out of his way to arrange marriages for his children across clan and tribal boundaries. 
So that's actually noteworthy. Again, I quote here this time from uh, commentator Barry Webb. The point is, Ibzan was a networker. He used marriages to establish relationships, not just between nuclear families, but between clans and most likely tribes. I put on your outline the way the ESV translates it, because I think it's more clear there. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters. He gave in marriage outside his clan, and 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons. So this is the idea. And why is that so significant? Well, we've just come out of a civil war. And so any efforts, right, to promote the unity of the larger nation are a blessing and something that God is using. In verse 11, then, we're introduced to the second of these three, Elon. Uh, He's called a Zebulonite. So we know for sure he's from way up north, and he judged Israel 10 years. This is the shortest account of any of the judges. And we might say, well, we realize there's nothing here. We, we can't tell anything. And yet, the fact that he judged Israel, and he did it in a time where there was peace, he wasn't fighting against any external enemy, helps us understand what that work was. Again, Matthew Henry here, uh, quoting from him, says, Elon of Zebulun in the north of Canaan was next raised up to preside in public affairs to administer justice, to reform abuses. Ten years he continued a blessing to Israel and then he died. And and that's the idea, that he is in a position, people are coming to him for wisdom, for judgment. He is in a position to help uh, the people serve God faithfully and well. And and, and based on what we know, this is what he was doing, uh, he must have been doing to have been judging for those 10 years. Finally then, we are introduced to Abdon in verses 13 and following. And now he says, it tells us that he had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 young donkeys. Again, we've seen this imagery before. Riding on donkeys is a picture of peace. It's not war horses. And this is now an itinerant ministry. This is a picture of a man with many assistants helping him do his work, moving out around and trying to help the people uh, have their disputes settled and to serve God more faithfully. Again, this is presented to us as a blessing to the nation and, uh, and something to be celebrated. Uh, last week, I, I had the privilege of getting a little tour of the warehouse. I know some of you are familiar with it, maybe not all of you. It's a Christian ministry in our community down on South Rogers Street, which is literally in a giant warehouse. But it's a ministry designed in part to provide uh, activities for young people in the community so that when school day is over, kids can go there and there's all kinds of things going on and, and just wonderful opportunities. And the tour I received was to show me that at the warehouse, they're in the process of building what I think I was told will be the largest hydroponics, um, uh, hydroponics uh, farming operation in the country when it's done. Um, Okay, aquaponics. So it's growing plants indoors with water and without soil. And the beauty of that is you can do that all year round. And the goal is to provide a revenue stream for this ministry, which depends completely on donations, to try to provide a revenue stream to keep them going and to supplement the donations. And so while I was there, I I, I met a retired man who's working to build this thing. And it just struck me what a wonderful thing 
uh, the people of God, the church of God is, you have people with such unique backgrounds and training and some people with vision and they get an idea and they come together and it's a blessing to the people of God. And we should thank God for that very thing. Uh, This is what we're seeing here uh, in the book of Judges, God raising up these different people and, and using them to bless his people. And this is exactly what goes on in the church. And we can celebrate the fact uh, that we have guys with the vision to say, hey, let's do a nice dinner and invite couples and provide music. I mean, it's, yeah, like I, I could never pull that off in a million years. And thank God we have a diversity in the church uh, that does things like this. And so we should celebrate this, that God's blessing often comes to us through the unique people that he calls and that he brings into our lives as we see here. Fourthly, then, we also see that God's commitment to bless you, even in these difficult times, means that dysfunction is never inevitable for you. And, and this is very important to understand. Uh, commentators, when they, when they look at these three judges, these brief depictions, they notice that we're no longer getting these statements we got in earlier parts of the book where it would tell us the land had rest for so many years. And uh, if you remember back in uh, chapter 3, Othniel gave the land rest for 40 years and then Ehud for 80 years. And so we had these long, long periods of rest. Now here we have 7, 10, 8 years and the rest isn't mentioned. And the point is, right, that the times are getting shorter and the rest is getting perhaps less restful, that there, there's, there's decline going on overall. But, but we should not lose sight of the fact that this is a genuine time of blessing within this period. And most likely the six years, the eight years, uh, the, the, uh, the ten years, these are not the full extent of, of, of these men and their influence, right? You can't have 60 children in, uh, in six years, right? You can't have 40 grandchildren in 10 years. That, the, that, that Perhaps what we're actually seeing is three generations of people that are living within this overall decline, but they're living in a time of blessing. And, and those are real people experiencing the grace of God in a profound way. And, uh, and we should really be recognizing how God is telling us that dysfunction, it may be prevalent, it's not inevitable for any particular people. And that really gets highlighted in this text with this last judge, Abdon. Because where is Abdon from? It, it, the author saves that almost to the very end. He's from Ephraim. And we ended last week with Ephraim rebelling against God's leader and having 42,000 of their people killed. And so it's not insignificant that God raises up a judge from Ephraim. Because what God is saying there is if I can raise up a judge from amongst these difficult people, I can raise up servants from anybody. Your past, your family's past, is not an impediment for God accomplishing his purposes with you. And you remember what, how that passage ended. The, the Ephraimites were creeping back after being defeated across the river 
denying that they were Ephraimites, and then uh, if they couldn't say the word properly, right, being killed. Total humiliation, total humiliation. And yet God sees fit to take one of them and raise him up to be the leader of the people for a period of time. That should help us because it means there's nothing in your past that prevents God from using you now or in the future. And yes, we are all profoundly influenced by our past. You know, some of us, we feel like our parents were too harsh with us, so then we're too lenient. Uh, some of us feel like our parents were too lenient, so then we tend toward being too harsh. We, we're always responding in some way to the experiences of our past. But the passage is reminding you that you are not doomed, you're not destined to repeat whatever, whatever the mistakes are of those who were around you now or were around you in the past. That God is gracious to work in your life and to use you if you will follow him so that dysfunction, no matter how close it's come to you in your life, is not inevitable for you. God is committed to bless you and that's part of the blessing, that he can use people out of all kinds of backgrounds. And so finally then we see here, fifthly, that your confidence that God will bless you comes from knowing the Lord Jesus. How can you know uh, that you will not be consigned to repeat the past if that's bad? How do you know that dysfunction will not be the final word in your life? Well, it comes from the fact that the Lord has sent his son into this dysfunctional world to take on and to, in a sense, eat up the dysfunction of his people. And Jesus didn't come and sort of keep everything at arm's distance and stay far away from it. In fact, go back and read the genealogies, right? The genealogies of Jesus make it clear that even his human ancestry has profound dysfunction in it all the way through. And then when he comes, who does he seek out? That's what we read earlier from Matthew 9. He seeks out the most dysfunctional people in the society. Again, again, he's not afraid to love them, to minister to them, to get close to them. Because Jesus himself is going to take all the dysfunction of this world on himself. And he's going to, he's going to take it to the cross. And that's where we can have confidence that dysfunction is not the final word for any of us. We see Jesus hanging on the cross experiencing the suffering that God placed upon him for us and all of that dysfunction being dealt with by him. And he's the one that liberates you from ever having that be what defines you. And we said this earlier in the service, Jesus said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And he went on to say, the sick, the sick are the sinners and those who know they're sinners and this is what's so wonderful about our Lord. Your dysfunction, my dysfunction, the family's dysfunction, the culture's dysfunction, none of those things are impediments for Jesus because that's exactly what he's come for. He's come to save the sick and the needy and the people who know 
that they need him. One of my graduate students at the university having a conversation with her, and she's from a very secular uh, country in Europe. And I don't know how we were talking about, um, somehow it came up how long I had been married. And she said to me, I do not know anyone who's been married for 30 years. It, it just isn't done. And it was just sort of a marvel. Like, how does, how does that even happen? And yet, God's working in that nation to build up a, a church. We have a Reformed Presbyterian ministry in that nation. Um, we, we have brothers here with us from halfway around the world. And, and their culture is deeply hostile to the gospel and to all that is good. And yet, we have kids coming here to study in a Christian school because their parents are willing to sacrifice literally just about everything to allow their children to be educated in a Christ-centered way. God is at work in the worst places in the world. And we know that. And that's because that's the way God operates. And he's at work in your world as well. And so whatever it is, whether it's the dysfunction out there in our culture, which is so frustrating, or whether it's close at home in the people you love, God is committed to blessing you in the midst of that. And you need to believe him and to trust the Lord and to find the freedom that he gives you to serve him as one of his children. Let's pray and we'll give him thanks for his great work. Heavenly Father, we can look around in our culture, we can look around in our extended families, we can sometimes look around in our own family and see the brokenness that's all around us. And we, we mourn that that is the case. And yet, Lord, how grateful we are for your word here which reminds us that that is never the final word, that your grace is at work in the midst of it, that you are committed to blessing your people through the Lord Jesus who came into this dysfunctional world, suffered at the hands of dysfunctional people to bring liberty and freedom and forgiveness uh, to his children. And we pray, Lord, for grace that we would believe what your scripture is telling us. A man from Ephraim could become a judge, uh, that Lord, our past, uh, the things around us are not impediments for you to work and to use us. And so we pray, Lord, you would help us to believe these things, to turn to you in faith and to know the blessing and the promise of Jesus that he came for the sick. He came for those who know they need help. And we pray, Lord, that we would rest in him and that you would give us grace so that we might be sent out and used by you uh, to bring light uh, to those suffering under the dysfunction of this world. Lord, we thank you uh, that you are at work and that we can trust you. And we pray that we might see your hand in our lives even in this coming week. For we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Now let's uh, respond back to the Lord.
in song. We'll sing this time from Psalm 34, selection C. And this mentions the fact that God is near uh, to the brokenhearted. Though the righteous man great trouble see, the Lord from all will set them free. And all his bones he'll keep secure. No broken ones will he endure. And that, that is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ uh, because Jesus uh, survived. Jesus won the victory and lives forever. His people will also win the victory. So let's stand and sing about God's grace to the brokenhearted. <laughs> 